0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 292 of the podcast. I have a fantastic guest and fascinating research to share with you today. My guest is Christine Carter. Christine Carter is the author of a brand new book called The New Adolescence, and the subtitle is Raising Happy and Successful Teens in an Age of Anxiety and Distraction. So whether you currently have teenagers, this book is for you, or if you have children that will eventually grow to be teenagers, which is all of us as mothers, this book is for you because so much of what we talk about today needs to happen preparatory to the teenage years and setting the stage for developing confidence, developing healthy habits, and coming armed and equipped with the knowledge of what kids are facing these days. Christine herself is a mother of teenagers and has done extensive research in this field. And I just find her journey so, so fascinating. And what she shares with me is incredibly inspiring and interesting. And I know that you're going to get a lot out of it today. So let's get to my conversation with Christine Carter. All right, I am so honored to be speaking with Dr. Christine Carter today. Hi, Christine. Hi. How many years did it take to get that doctor before your name? How many years of school did you do? <laughs>
1: um, 7 years, but I had, I started when my oldest was an infant and I had another child during grad school. Are so you serious? It took me a little
0: longer. <laughs> wow, that is so impressive. What kept you motivated during that time, because that would have been the perfect permission slip to take some time off and everything. But what, what kept you going during that phase of life that was already so crazy? Oh, you know
1: what? I actually really loved graduate school and because I was, um, really also focused on being a mom at that time. I mean, I took, I took a year off when I had uh, my second and, um, and so it was like, I wasn't stressed about getting a job. So everybody in my cohort was sort of like really worried about publishing and, and I was just like, I get to come to school. Yes. So yeah. great. I'm, I get to learn. Um, and then also they gave, um, at UC Berkeley, they have really great benefits for mm-hmm. mothers and I took advantage of those. So like they gave me a special scholarship, for example, if I stay, stayed in school, like on track. And um, so it, it was good that for them. Too. It was like, I have to go back to school this semester or I'll lose my, my funding. Yes. And, um, and it wasn't like, it didn't feel like force. It felt like justification <laughs> yeah, for I was sure
0: really it. I loved it how progressive and I think <clears throat> in this country we are lacking in support for new parents in general not just mothers but fathers as well who want to be there and be present for their kids but also having kind of unique incentives or unique arrangements where you can make it work you don't have to just have to stop your life because suddenly you're a parent or it doesn't have to be a negative thing that you know, that becomes a new factor in the mix because really, life experience and motherhood and that whole transitionary time, it's quite expansive for a person. And in that new life experience, I think only adds to your vision and your perspective and really what you're capable of because nothing equips you for doing multitasking and diversifying your skill set quite like parenthood. <laughs>
1: I know. It's so true. It it's so true and I I feel like I had so much more balance mm. than I would have if I'd stayed in the corporate world where I before where I was before. I went to grad school and if I didn't have kids but was in grad school, right? It was really good training for me to lead a more balanced life. That is so, so interesting. It's well, a good if... transition to motherhood. That's I highly really recommend it. Everybody really says, cool. oh, that sounds so crazy. How did you get your PhD when you had little kids? And I'm like, oh, I think it was easier for me.
0: <laughs> that is so fascinating, and I'm so glad that you did because now you have – this career and all of this really important research that you've done, and we're going to cover today. Um, but for people that don't know you yet, Christine, we could just get a little bit of a background on yourself and your family.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, so I I have a PhD in sociology, and um, and so I've always been really interested in the sociology of well being and. Um, So what that means is that I've studied how social structures like families or businesses um, or schools um, affect the well-being of the people within them, and more specifically, how the habits and routines within a family, for example, can elicit certain emotions and inhibit others. And, um, and so for me, that's always been really an empowering look at happiness, right? It's, I'm, I'm less interested in the genetic components of things, for example, or the personality based stuff and more interested in the social aspects. So, um, for me as a parent, I've been, you know, really interested in, um, and what I can do to sort of set my family up so that the kids will thrive um, mm-hmm. within that and then so I have four kids they're all teenagers <laughs> right wow. now um, I have two children from my first marriage and then two stepchildren um, from my second marriage
0: awesome that have
1: been that have been with it. we've been together as a family of six for about 10 years
0: Hey everyone, I wanted to jump in real quick to thank one of our show sponsors, and that is Cosmetology. Cosmetology is a brand that was created by Dr. Janice Covey, a mom who was frustrated when her youngest daughter was diagnosed with eczema at only three months old, and she noticed a lack of effective, affordable, organic products to help her daughter's skin and as a pharmacist herself she decided to make her own line of products for children so there's a couple products they have that are really unique and the first that i received that i have been loving for my kids is the lotion bar so a lotion bar is pretty unique but it is a solid moisturizer containing effective organic moisturizing ingredients like shea butter and olive oil and there's actually no water in it, so eliminates the need for alcohol and potentially hazardous preservatives that a lot of the other products on the market have. And the thing that I love is it's great for travel, it's solid so it doesn't spill, TSA approved, fantastic. And it is so great for kids because you're not handing them over a messy lotion bottle, you're handing them a stick so they're able to smooth it on their own skin and that has worked so great for my youngest son who has a specially sensitive skin. The other thing I'm loving is hand soap. I love the good smelling hand soaps out there, but I know that there's lots of chemicals and junk in there. But the thing about cosmetology is you can get five essential oil infused different scents. This is the perfect hand soap for the entire family and it's free of antibacterial agents. My son literally just hopped out of the bath. Is using that lotion bar as we speak, and I am loving Cosmetology products. So Cosmetology has a great offer for our listeners. For any first-time purchasers, you receive 15% off. So to receive 15% off your order, go to cosmetology.com and use code EEP at checkout. That's dot com, And again, use promo code EEP at checkout for that 15% off. Thanks again to Cosmetology for sponsoring the show. Now let's get back to my conversation with Christine. So let's talk about that word happiness because I feel like happiness changes between when before you get married and definitely before you have kids. How you want to spend your time and and where that leads you in terms of happiness looks much different than once you have dependents And sometimes even very subconsciously and unintentionally, our happiness feels linked to the appendages that we have grown and how they act or how they feel or if they're listening to us and all these things. And we feel a bit like our happiness is less under our own control. Can you speak to that a little bit, like both personally and scientifically? hmm yeah, so um
1: I, I mean I think it, anecdotally there we have this saying that you're only as happy as your least happy child, right right like yeah. I think that this is a very common thing and um and scientifically, there is a little of ev- there's a lot of evidence that emotions are very contagious yes. um, it doesn't mean that the least happy person is the contagion though, wow. right so um so while we understand that, I I think of this personally as a common pitfall and that when we have a child who is struggling, that is perhaps the most important time for us to take care of our own well-being. Um, And the reason is that um, we need to be the sort of steady, calm force um, that anchors the ship, so to speak, so that the whole ship doesn't go down. And, um, and so, or, or really to think about our kids as the sail and we need to be the rudder in that. And so this is a very challenging aspect of parenting. Um, challenging but not impossible because, so I see it as being really challenging, at least for me personally, because it's easy to be, get caught up in the problems and anxieties of our kids, but that is precisely the time in which it's most important for our kids for us to do the things that we need um to take care of ourselves so that means not you know not focusing and dedicating everything to the child who is uh, struggling for example it means taking time to get enough sleep for yourself and to see your friends and to go to therapy yourself and to you know do all the things mm-hmm. um, that that we sort of reserve for like oh, when I have more time right, right. Um, so there's a there's a little bit of a uh, it feels like a conflict to parents I think
0: it definitely does and I think parenting books in general tend to focus way more on how to uh, kind of manipulate our kids' behavior and how to teach them very uh, explicitly through our words and through our expectations and things like that, and far less on simply the modeling aspect. And what you're saying about taking care of yourself first is simply good modeling that they will pick up on and they will learn those positive behaviors and positive coping mechanisms and healthy coping mechanisms by watching you. And if you are burning the candle at both ends and the martyr mother and things like that, they're going to end up no better and probably worse than, you know, when you're, you know, doing the opposite.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's more than just modeling too. It's being able to be your, bring your best self to your parenting when Mm. your kids need it the most, when they need you to be responsive, for example, to their issues rather than just reactive, right? Mm. Like, so if you have a a child who's struggling with anxiety for example and you bring your own anxiety to that situation you're not bringing your best parenting right no. you're not providing necessarily even though it's normal to feel anxious if you bring that anxiety to the to the child basically and to the the situation you're not being the best parent that you can be. Right. And the way to be the best parent that you can be is to find your own sense of peace, to deal with your anxiety outside of the parenting situation, and then show up as calm and mm-hmm. responsive and engaged, but not freaking out.
0: You know, it's hard. This <laughs> it is is. Not a- <laughs> well, and what I love is that you get it. You have four teenagers right now, yeah. and yeah. you've done, you've walked the walk, and so it's your life experience paired with your research and talking to lots of other people in this space as well. So that's why I think this conversation is so so valuable. And I mean, my mom's a preschool teacher, and very often, not all, not all the time. So if your child has separation anxiety. Maybe just look at this from a high level, but sometimes the kids that have the biggest struggles separating, it, it, the parents also show some some hesitance and some lingering tendencies, and and are kind of exuding that sense of anxiety and fear about school that that their kids then are picking up on and then acting out on as well. So it it starts really early, and it what you're saying is it continues on as well, doesn't it? It does. It yeah.
1: does. Oh my gosh. When my first child left for school, I I I, I could barely I could barely function for three solid weeks. <laughs> right? Like you know what I mean? And this she actually, because she had gone away to school, didn't have to witness this. And so it was I think she was fine, but it doesn't end at preschool. I think that that is the perfect analogy. We're constantly having to let go of our kids. And it's never harder than When they're struggling, and I'm not saying by letting go, I'm not saying become disengaged when they're struggling. I think actually that's a, that's an unhealthy coping mechanism that some parents use, right? Um, but I'm, but I'm saying letting go of overinvestment in the project that is your child, right? Letting go like, this is their journey and they are going to struggle and we have to be willing to let them.
0: I know. But, Christine, we just want to wrap our kids in bubble wrap. And sometimes right. we feel like we want to ha- them to have it better than we did. And sometimes that looks like t- keeping them from the challenges and the hurt and the life experiences that ultimately we know will refine them and make them tougher. But we don't want to, Christine.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. I think, for, I think as moms, we're totally hardwired yeah, to yeah. try and prevent. Um, our children from feeling pain. I just think that we are. And that also it's super important for us to sort of resist fixing things for them and wrapping them in bubble wrap Mm -hmm. in, um, in because they, because otherwise they can't cope with even discomfort, right? They don't learn the skills that they need when life gets challenging or difficult. And when they don't, when they're not able to deal with discomfort, and they don't have healthy coping mechanisms around discomfort, both you know physical and emotional pain and things just like disappointment, mm-hmm. um, then life becomes very, very bleak for yeah. them. If you can't handle a challenge, which is a form of discomfort, you never gain any sort of mastery. If you never gain any sort of mastery, your life feels meaningless. Mm-hmm. So it's... Yeah. Um, I mean, I can sort of take that cycle down for uh, in a lot of different ways. And I actually think that this is something that's really different now for this generation of kids and teenagers that's being raised. I think our approach to pain has become much more fearful. And by pain, I mean, you know, the full range of things from, you know, minor emotional discomfort like boredom right. Right all the way through like pain after having your wisdom teeth out, right? Like yes. There's a, there's a, that's a wide spectrum. It's a big category. But in general, as a society, we're very fearful about it. And what we know about pain is that if you're
0: afraid of it, it's amplified. Talk to me about the fear of boredom. That's a new one. I don't think our parents (laughs) had a fear of boredom. They just figured out things to do. And now with devices and instant gratification and you don't need anybody else socially in order to plug yourself into something. So tell me about that.
1: I know. Well, it's sort of interesting because I feel like boredom has been a part of childhood since the beginning of time, Uh right? Like, I I mean, okay, so maybe I'm not that old, but certainly like as a kid, I can remember going to my mom and saying, mom, I'm bored. Mom, I'm bored. I'm bored. I'm bored. I'm bored. bored." And she never fixed it for me. Right. Like she was, she was never like, sometimes she would offer to drive me to a friend's house or something like that. But for the most part, it was like, okay, you're bored. (laughs) Right. Like it was like, deal with it. This is not my problem. Like she would never say that, but it, it was like, she barely listened. Right. Like it was just like a thing. And now kids don't experience boredom in the way that they used to, and because they have devices, right? So um, I have, well, I mean, just go to go to a restaurant and see any little kid; um, they're not entertaining themselves with the crayons. I don't even, you know, mm-hmm. they're on an iPad usually, or their parent's phone, or they're running around, you know, running around. And so the sort of ability to tolerate not just boredom, but also stillness ah. it is, um, well, that's a skill that mm-hmm. kids aren't developing um, these days because in some ways they don't have to. But, um, but that, of course, has its consequences. If you can't tolerate stillness, you also probably can't focus without stimulation. And so when you get to be a teenager, if you haven't, developed the ability to focus or do deep work or really pay deep attention to something over a period of time without stimulation, right? Like the stimulation of a device or a video game or whatever. Um, well then you need stress, right? You need cortisol, you need stress hormones and dopamine and all of that. And so, um, you know, we are seeing this epidemic of teenagers who are really stressed and really anxious, and that is the way they focus, right? Mm. It's, not, it's not without its consequences.
0: Yeah, and I mean, this is really the first generation to be completely brought up in this technological age. I got a cell phone when I was 16 and started driving and it was my dad's. I still have that same phone number (laughs) and he handed it over because he needed to be able to reach me, right? And so it is so different and I'm sure there's going to be so much coming out, you know, in the next 20 years once we have these kids uh, growing up and whatnot. But I think, what what I hear you saying is really it just boils down to these kids are out of practice and and sometimes we as adults just get out of practice with the stillness or with boredom or whatever and because we're so accustomed to just replacing it with something else, we can get it back. There's it's not hopeless, but oh we God, need to no, practice. It's not at all. Yeah. So it, so so the word stillness. What would that even look like? for our kids and for them not to say like, I'm bored, right? What does that look like?
1: Yeah. So, um, so, so here in our household, here's how it's looked like no devices at mealtimes, for example, even if you're eating alone, Uh no devices in the car. Um, so, you know, you look out the window, you sort of know where you're going, that kind of thing. And, um, sometimes that looks like, great piece right like there's like conversation that there wouldn't be if everybody was looking down at their device and other times it looks like pro like just obnoxious protest right (laughs) like why are we the only ones or like or it's sneaking look peeks at their phones or whatever right like there's it's not without its resistance but I think as parents um It's our, it's our, I just said ability and that's sort of an interesting slip. It's, I was going to say it's our job, but also we have the ability to create structures, which are like, this is what, this is what it looks like in an ideal world. Like Mm. there are periods of times on our devices or periods of time with high stimulation and periods of time where we have stillness, where we're not looking down at a device and um and those are equally important for our overall well-being for the function of our brain you know we we have these principles and um and it's our kids job to push the limits right, right? to see what they can get away with these devices are extremely addictive and um you know i i really think it's not overstating it to say what, like when when they have their devices within hand's reach it's not unlike like handing me a really nice glass of Chardonnay and saying, don't drink it. Hmm. Right. Like there's, I know if I drink it, I'm going to get a big dopamine hit. It's going to feel kind of good. And that's like what's happening to our kids all the time. So I think that there are some structural solutions that are really important.
0: Yeah. So like setting them up for success, right? So you can't just expect, Mm -hmm. I have a puppy right now. And there are certain things that I cannot expect from my puppy because he's a puppy, right? And so if I leave the food on the table, yeah, I might get mad that he eats the food off the table. But really, whose fault was it? that the food was was within his reach, right? So it's yes. kind of the same thing as what you're saying. It is totally. And I, it really
1: is also with older kids. I just want okay. to emphasize that it's not that, that our teenagers even, even our older teenagers are like that puppy in terms of their, the development of their frontal lobes, which will give them the self-control that they need. So it, it is unrealistic. To expect them to be able to manage something as addictive as a smartphone with social media on it. I mean, there's just mm-hmm. nothing more salient to a teenager than that. Yeah. Or a, a tween, like a middle schooler or whatever. And, um, and so, but I, but I hear parents all the time say, oh, my kid is 16, I can't control the phone. Right. Um, yes, you can. That pre that prefrontal lobe will not be developed till they're 25 or maybe even 26, and, then, and if it's a boy, um, and they need the structure and support of good parenting around these devices in the same way that we, you know, parent them with cars and we've learned like other things which can be so great for them. I'm not saying these devices are evil and that they shouldn't be on them at all. I'm saying they need a lot of support around yeah. it, even older kids. Yeah. And parents can provide that support. Um, they pay for the phones and the data plans and all that kind of stuff for the most part. It's, as a parent, it's your phone. It's your phone. And it's also your responsibility.
0: Hey everyone, I know you're loving my conversation with Christine, but I wanted to thank our final show sponsor, and that is Orate. Orate is a fine jewelry company made in New York City, founded by women for women. Their pieces are ethically made in New York City, and you guys, you are going to love checking out their website. Orate's gold feels substantial, and the diamonds sparkle and shine, but they're at affordable prices, and they all come with a lifetime warranty because they know that their products last. And because they sell directly to you without the middleman markup, they can offer the same quality as traditional Fifth Avenue brands at a fraction of the cost. For every piece sold, a child in need also receives a book to further their education. I got two different pieces. I got the ball gold studs, and then I also got a mini diamond stackable ring in gold. When I opened up the box, I literally squealed. The packaging was so, so beautiful. It took my breath away and I have not taken it off my right hand ring finger since and my gold studs have stayed in as well these are high quality pieces they are gorgeous and affordable in terms of a high quality jewelry piece and I would love for you to check out this new brand I'm so excited to let you know about them because this was a new to me brand you guys and I only endorse things that I truly truly believe in and I am so glad I know about Ori now so for 15% off your first orate purchase, go to AureateNewYork.com slash EEP and use promo code EEP. So it's a little tricky to spell. Here we go. A-U-R-A-T-E York.com slash EEP and use promo code EEP for 15% off. Your first Orate purchase. Thanks so much to Orate for sponsoring the show and for my beautiful ring. I love it so much. And my husband thanks you for the Valentine's present. (laughs) I love that. And I like the word support um, versus like limits or things like that. Because really, yeah, we're trying to help our kids to navigate this world as best as we can. And there are going to be missteps that we make or that they make and you simply need to adapt through those because when you know better you do better. And so exactly. I think keeping that line of communication open with your teens like okay so I'm going to I'm going to give you a phone. It's going to be a phone used for this this and this. This is when we can use it and then we're going to like have check-ins or we're going to you know reevaluate at certain times or whatever it is but making sure that they know this is not just a all right here's a gift. And you can, you know, it's a free for all now. So I think knowing that, you know, I'm not, my goal is not to invade your privacy. My goal is to keep you safe and to support you or, you know, just you get to decide what that looks like in your home, but supporting them I think is, is huge. And your new book that's coming out, The New adolescence. tell me about that term. What does that mean to you, Christine?
1: <laughs> the new adolescence, the new part or the adolescence part? You know, it's funny. <laughs> the adolescence part, I'm just going to say adolescence is the longest decade ever as a parent and as a kid, right? Because it starts yeah. around 10 or 11 years old and it ends when they're 25 or 26. So I'll, I talk about teenagers all the time, right? Because that's our shorthand, but we're really talking about. This phase of brain development that is really important and really massive brain development happens during adolescence. The type of brain growth changes, the, neur- the neurology of their development changes quite dramatically during adolescence. The new part is, um, it addresses what we've sort of been touching on, which is that this is a different world that these kids are growing up on, and that is affecting their development. And it is, or it, um, it's better if it's also affecting the way that we parent, right? But this is very hard, right? When I was a teenager, not only did we not have the internet, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, we didn't... I, sexting wasn't a thing. Gender was pretty much universally considered binary, right? right. We didn't have vaping. Um, th- like, everything... There were lots of things in our society that are are really... have changed really dramatically, And what this means is that our kids are having a very different experience than we had, and we need to really adapt as parents. And I know that that's really scary for a lot of parents. Like, they just, um, it's natural to try to avoid, like, okay, well, I don't really know about this sexting thing. Like, I don't, I can't, like, am I really going to teach my kids safe sexting? That just seems crazy.
0: Well, and we think, sorry to interrupt, but but we think by bringing it up, we're, like, putting an idea in their mind. And I think that is yeah. just, like, so not right. Like, there, it's, no, it's everywhere. It's Your kid's yeah, not immune. That's yeah. not
1: true. Uh-huh. But it's easy to feel that way. Yes. I will say, for me personally, and I was raised by a wonderful but very – my mother is um, – she's very stereotypically German, right? Like, there's just wasn't a lot of conversation or emotion or those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And um, – and so for me, this was like this big discovery of like when I started to really engage in all of this stuff, it's so rewarding to try and, I mean, a lot of these conversations that I've ended up having with my kids and it has like made me feel like hurling myself out of a moving car, right? Like they're <laughs> so awkward, <laughs> um, but then also it's. It's just amazing to witness the world that they're growing up in. It's like the world they see is really different than the world I would see without their lens.
0: Mm -hmm. So Yeah. And I think we've never done this before. And I think that's so important to acknowledge. (laughs) Like we feel like, how am I supposed to have this conversation? I, I don't know what to say. But A, there's lots of resources to help support you as a parent. Yes. And B... You just kind of go step by step. And for me, at least, my oldest is turning 10 this month. And so we're just on the cusp of all this. But we've begun to have these conversations when he comes home and says, I know how a baby's made. And I just say, tell me. Tell me. Tell me what your friends told you. And then I'm able to clarify, okay, so he got this part right. But this is, you know, what's actually true. And this is what we think about it. Right? In a very right. like calm, nonchalant I was not prepared for that conversation. I hadn't premeditated it. We didn't do a special dinner out where they feel like it's this huge thing. It's just something that they can bring up to me without a huge reaction. Right. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's perfect. I mean pretty big. Yeah, because
1: we were sort of I feel like we were sort of trained to think of it as like the sex talk. Right. Right? Right. Like the the single talk. And now it's just gotta be a whole series of conversations. In which, I mean, your response, I feel like, is just perfect because your first response is tell me, right? Mm-hmm. Because these kids, for the most part, I mean, I think the average age of pornography, internet pornography exposure is younger than 10. It's nine I now, I think. I know. So it's, um, so like, they need to tell us what they've seen. And, um, this, is the, this is like the perfect example of like, oh my God, let's wrap them in bubble wrap. Like yeah. how can we prevent them? And I do think that we should do everything within our power to prevent them from um, exposure to these very, very toxic forces. And it's not the end of the world yeah. if it happens, no. right? Like we do our best and then we do our best to respond to the reality of what has happened.
0: Right, absolutely. And I think the hardest part, I think, is deciding what requires like pre teaching, right? Pre-teaching. And coming a- ahead of the event or ahead of the knowledge or ahead of the whatever. And then you'd never want to be doing full damage control. That's where it gets really messy. Yeah. And that's when it's really the hardest. And, and we all will be in those situations for sure. And that's nothing against any parents that experience that part, but there has to be some preparatory teaching. And then just again, like revisiting along the way, kind of like with the phone, I, it's so hard. It's, it's just hard to know what to do. And there's no set roadmap and every kid is different. I think the different genders, you know, that plays into it differently. It's just tricky.
1: Yeah.
0: I think, I, I think you're right.
1: And I think that like, so for example, when kids um, get their first phone, it might not be a smartphone, Mm -hmm. you know, or they get their first iPad or whatever. It's really important to lay out your expectations. And so on my website I have, and in the book, there are tech examples of like a technology contract that you can take and alter it for your family and your values. But what I've tried to do is lay out for parents like, here are all the conversations that you now need to have. Here's Mm. all the pre-teaching. Right? So that when they make mistakes, which they will, you can you they they will know that they've made a mistake and you can have the conversation again now that they have some experience under their belt and they, they they're going to understand better why you set the limits that you do around these, um, phones. But I do, I think you're right. There has to be some, some pre conversations. I mean, it's better, right? Mm -hmm. We can't always foresee everything. And also sometimes these things happen much younger than we're expecting. And so once again, we do our best, but, um, but there are a lot of resources out there and, um, to, to do some of that pre-teaching. And it's never as hard as we think it's going to be. No, It's just like, in fact, it's better if the conversations are short and by yes. short, I mean like a one minute exchange, uh, that just plants a certain idea. That's fine. It doesn't have to be a like big sit down after dinner. We're going to talk about, sexting right Amazing. well and they stop For listening. Whatever. yes it's like every kid will be like they'll, they'll just learn that their parents thought it was very awkward <laughs> yeah you know. well
0: they stop Don't listening anyway they stop listening i remember one time with my first grader he came home and we had to address some bullying he wanted to share about a bullying situation in his class and And I just went on and on and on about bullying and kindness and da-da-da-da, and I'm like, so does that make sense? Probably five, six minutes later, and he said, well, I only heard, you know, whatever the first sentence was that I said. (laughs) I'm like, oh, "Oh, oh, okay. So, so say what you want to say in the first sentence. That is definitely recommended. But you're right. That can be planned. Yes. Right. Yes. You can
1: plan the first sentence. Yes. And and like practice it in your head and know that's like really all you need to do. And when you're when you lay out that first sentence, and then you're like, okay, my work here is done. The kids, especially teenagers, will sense you're pulling away from yeah. the conversation a little bit. And sometimes that's when they choose to engage. Mm. It's it's like magic, yeah. right? If you're like, yeah. I just want to give you this one sentence, and then I'm going to stop talking but keep looking at you, right? Right? Like sometimes you can just see the switch flip, like, oh, this is not going to be a forced conversation. That's all the information that's coming. And right. then with my oldest, I, there were some real – really, really deep, interesting conversations that came out that way.
0: See, I love that so much. And we may not give them the opportunity to share what's on their heart if we're so busy saying what we want to say. And so, you know, back to, you know, where babies come from with my son – it's like I asked him what he what he knew already, and so that kind of opened the door, and he felt comfortable talking. Thank goodness. And some won't, and so you kind of have to navigate that um, accordingly. But I think asking your kids, you know, what do you already know about something? What do you want to know? Or how do you feel about something? I think those are great questions. And if we just yeah. listen more and talk less, you can get to the root much faster, and and really only have to share what they actually care about. He didn't need to know all the things about where babies come from. He just <laughs> wanted clarification on what was being talked about. And I said, do you have any questions? And he's like, no. And then literally, Christine, two days later, he comes back and he says, I do have one more question. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so proud of you for feeling comfortable enough. I, I didn't make it quite that big of a deal. But, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, yes. Yeah, he felt totally. comfortable to follow up, and he did need time to process that, and he needed right. some clarification on things I had said before that weren't mm-hmm. completely accurate, like biologically, and was more just like how we feel about it. And he wanted to see how those two things intersected. And I'm like, "That's a great question." Here, here you go. And so we, but we only needed to address that part. And I think that's true for little kids. I think it's fine when they say, "But why." To give them an answer, but you don't need to like go on and on and on. And for teens, again, what's that first sentence and what's the most important message you want them to hear? And then let them go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and just asking them, sometimes it's not even
1: a sentence uh, with teenagers. Often it's uh, even better than a single sentence is a single question, right? Mm. An open ended question. So I can remember my older girls were, um, chit-chatting kind of in the kitchen within earshot of me about a friend of my oldest, um, who was doing some really sexually risky things. Mm. And, um, and I was like, Oh, there is a reason that they are having this conversation in front of of me, me. right? Like Mm. I cannot, I'm not going to enter into it. I'm just listening. And it gave me this opening to come back. So I was making dinner and then we had dinner. And then after dinner, the girls were just sort of sitting around. And I said, so I, you know, I heard you talking about so-and-so and and I'm just wondering how, how do you feel about her behavior? Mm. And it was like my oldest just sort of almost broke down, you know, like she was very worried and very scared. And, and it was I think so much better than if I had gone with my impulse, which was in the kitchen to be like, oh, my God, you I I should call her mother right now. I know her mother. We have (laughs) to stop that. You know what I mean? Like I like the freak out comes really easily. to Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And um, I don't think that that would have had the same effect. Right. As the long conversation that came after it.
0: Yeah, that is that is so powerful. And I do think kitchen conversations and cooking and conversations where we're not making direct eye contact, so in the car, things like yeah. that, it feels a little less interrogative and like we're accusing them of something or spill it, you know, it's a little less intense. And so when we're able to just kind of multitask and create that opportunity and that space without it feeling like all the pressures on them, I've heard from a lot of teenage parents that have felt like that's where a lot of their great conversations happen.
1: Yes, totally. Yeah. I I know. So, the car. Nobody can get away. But often <laughs> They're they trapped. Will, like say things <laughs> that because they know they don't have to make eye contact. Yep, right?
0: totally. So the subtitle of your book, "The New Adolescence," is "Raising Happy and Successful Teens in an Age of Anxiety and Distraction." This is a must-read, not just for teen parents, but for any parents that are going to have teenagers eventually, which is every one of us, because we <laughs> have to. We have to know where we're going right when we know yeah. where we're, they're going to end up we have to lay this foundation and you you reiterate many many times in the book it's not too late if you feel like relationships are strained or you haven't done some of this groundwork laying or you're just floundering in this age of distraction and technology don't worry like just just start just start now um but one thing i found super interesting and we'll kind of end on this is you said it's important to help teens distinguish between the experience of pleasure or gratification and the experience of authentic, positive emotion, as the two things are very different physiologically. If they say that eating cake or playing a video game made them happy yesterday, that's pleasure and gratification, not positive emotion. And we want to try pointing them in the direction of one of the following positive emotions. And then you go on to talk about po- the positive emotions of gratitude, inspiration, future-based positive emotions, love, and peace. And I think so many times we think by by giving into the video game or by buying them something or by, you know, these these things that do elicit seeming happiness in our kids. And it is happiness. It's not the same as those lasting character building things that transform their motivations in life towards something bigger than themselves and something really, truly positive. What? When did that click for you and how did you come to that realization? Because I've never really heard it talked about like this.
1: Well, you know, it's funny because it it was much more, you know, parents are always say, well, I'm just trying to make them happy. I just want them to be happy. Yeah. And, um, you know, a life lived on the couch playing video games is not a life of happiness. So starting to, you know, for me, it was like, well, what is happiness? Happiness is actually a positive emotion in the present. And um, and the, the function of it is very different than... The, when we feel gratification or when we activate the reward system. So neurologically, like understanding the difference between those two things, the reward circuits in the brain, are um, they don't lead to happiness because um, dopamine's function is really to create craving. And so it's a very motivating thing factor, right? Like we want more of whatever we just had that was gratifying at first or brought pleasure at first. But we don't really want our kids to live a life of like constant craving. Of course, there will be craving and that will be motivating. So it's not, you know, all bad. But um, when it takes the place of the real, an authentic activation of um, the nervous system in the way that a positive emotion like gratitude or awe or a lasting form of joy or contentment um, will, that, you know, the, the function of, of the, those positive emotions or all positive emotions really is, um, well, there are many, but one of them is to put the brakes on any sort of fight or flight response hmm. to reduce stress. And um, and kids today really need that. And so we need to teach them that it's not about pleasure, really. Mm-hmm. It's about a, a more lasting
0: form of happiness. Mm, yeah. I could not agree more. And as I see my boys, I have three little boys growing up and seeing them fall into these habits of immediate gratification, I know where this is going, right? And so I have to make these changes now and I have to be mindful of, of this now and so much of what you talk about in the book, um, the bigger reactions to smaller things, things that like I'm already starting to see it. And so I have to be super intentional and I'm really encouraged and excited to have resources like your book and just so many other voices pouring into my life where it's like, I'm not alone in this. I'm not going to do it perfectly, but we're all gonna do our best, and we're gonna be okay, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We're that. we're all
1: gonna we're, when we do our best, everything is already okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think even our missteps are educational for our kids too. Absolutely. And coming to them and apologizing to our kids, or acknowledging, yeah. hey, you know what, I didn't handle this very well, or you know, we need to set new boundaries on the phone because you know we need to address this thing or that thing or whatever simply having that conversation and not just being accusatory or, or blaming them and then having that be a reflection on us. <laughs> I think again, right. if we're just hardwired like that, but it doesn't mean it has to be that way. Even that's right. our hard wiring. We can, we can rewire. We really can, can't we?
1: Absolutely. And that's exactly what's happening with our kids. They're yeah. rewiring all the time and they need to learn how to course correct because nobody does life perfectly And, um, you know, even 20 times, right. If we had more than this, like the, the whole thing is about getting lost and then finding your way and then getting lost and then finding your way again. And kids need us to just be engaged and, um, and, you know, and constantly course correcting. We don't have to be perfect. We just need to find our way.
0: I love it. I love it. Christine, this has been so fascinating, and I hope everyone will pick up your new book, The New Adolescence. Um, Tell everybody where they can find you online and where they can pick up the book.
1: Well, the book should be available wherever you normally buy um, buy your books, and, and if it's not, I hope you will ask for it, <laughs> um, but you can also just order it online, um, and my, off my website is christinecarter.com. So there are the, the technology contracts, That we talked about are free on my, um, website under the resources section. Perfect. So I, I hope that you will engage in this way. It's fun for me.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Well, great job on this book. You've also written, uh, raising happiness and everything. So just so much good knowledge there. Uh, Christine, I always ask my guests one final question and it's this, what would you tell your pre motherhood self?
1: Oh, just to relax. A little, mm-hmm. like <laughs> practice relaxing before you have the kids. That's what I would tell myself before you have know, your nervous a breakdown. Fun <laughs> I haven't, I haven't really thought about it, but that's the first thing that popped into head is my head is that like there's no there's there's no skill better for motherhood than the ability to relax, yeah. and it's it's a hard one.
0: It is for me uh, anyway. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much, Christine, for coming on the show today. I've learned so much, have so much food for thought, and I just really appreciate all your hard work and putting this information out into the world. Oh, well, thank
1: you for having me. This has been so much fun, Jessica.
0: Thank you. Wasn't that such a great conversation? I want to thank Christine Carter for coming on the show and definitely pick up her new book, The New Adolescents, Raising Happy and Successful Teens in an Age of Anxiety and Distraction. I'll have links over to ExtraordinaryMomsPodcast.com, of course. And if you don't already follow me on Instagram, you can do that at JessicaDalk3 or on Facebook at Extraordinary Moms Podcast. I'm so grateful that you tuned in today and I'm excited to bring you another Extraordinary Mom next week. So have a great week, everybody, and we'll see you next week with another extraordinary mom. Bye.